Welcome to Applied Geopolitics, the podcast from the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN. I'm your host, Roger Baker. Assessing geopolitical risk can appear overwhelming and unmanageable at times. The issues range from broad global patterns of competition, such as the evolving US-China relations, all the way down to local socio-political evolutions that can change regulatory environments in a key resourcing producing country. Navigating geopolitical risk and opportunity is a growing field, and it's increasingly important for businesses and internationally engaged organizations, not just for governments and the militaries that have traditionally thought in geopolitical terms. Thinking in frameworks can allow geopolitical analysts to contextualize day-to-day information volatility and to identify systemic versus cyclical changes. And that provides a more stable way of looking at an uncertain future. To discuss some of these geopolitical frameworks and ways to think about an evolving world and the implications, I'm pleased to be joined by Matt Gherkin, BCA Research's Chief Strategist, Geopolitical Strategy and US Political Strategy. He oversees the firm's coverage of market-relevant policy developments across the world. Prior to joining BCA in 2015, Matt worked as a senior analyst here at Stratfor and in various academic and publishing roles. Matt holds an MPhil from the University of Cambridge and a PhD from the University of Texas at Austin. And Matt, great to have you here. Thanks for joining me. Well, thank you, Roger. It's it's a real pleasure to be back with you, given that, of course, you have been one of the most influential geopolitical teachers uh, in my career. Well, for good or bad, we'll find out in this conversation, I guess. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I'd like to kick it off to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit. You know, we, we, we talk about frameworks, geopolitical frameworks, as ways to um, better interpret and understand day-to-day flow of information, to, to more effectively triage information, and to be able to better anticipate uh, future changes and adjustments. And, and what are ways that you think about or you utilize these sorts of frameworks in your work? Yeah, well, thanks, Roger. I, I think, you know, being multidisciplinary has been the most important thing that I've learned about how to balance political information, economic information, and military information, and try to think of geopolitics as a sort of synthesis. And so uh, where this begins, of course, is collecting data because we are fortunate to live in a period where political data has become much more uh, accessible. And it's not just public opinion polling, but just a range of information put out by think tanks and universities that we can draw from. And that was a gap that I think in previous periods had not been as well supplied. But of course, we also always have to struggle to get good information beneath the surface on what countries are doing strategically and in their in their military. Um, and we fortunately then can rely on the very broad range of data sets in, in the economy and financial markets, uh, which of course can, can really be critical uh, in determining what kind of limitations countries face. So try, trying to use geopolitical thinking, political analysis, uh, but then pay a close attention to the macroeconomic environment um, and the strategic environment and and really synthesize those things. That has been for me uh, the challenge uh, and it, it and it's been one that always forces me to go back to the data and look at charts 
um, and and to use those as my as my north star uh, when political debates themselves would really just sort of rattle on interminably uh, without conclusion. So that that's important because we've talked to a lot of people, and and you know one of the things in geopolitical analysis is often accused of being. Um, purely qualitative and therefore unmeasurable. And as you you note here, um, there is a lot of quantitative components that go in to better understand um, capacity, uh, constraints, um, actual directions versus perceived directions and change, uh, and, and that it's just as important to truly understand the quantifiable. And we're not talking about the quantifiable in terms of putting random numbers on concepts of political stability, although that can be valuable. But there is real quantifiable data that goes into a strong, powerful geopolitical analysis. Yeah, that's true. And I like what you said there about, you know, not relying too much on just uh, the quantification of the unquantifiable, because, you know, a good example of that is when the World Bank was producing governance indicators, and we, we would use those uh, but I always noticed very strange assignments of of value. Uh, for example, the Xi Jinping administration, when it came into power in 2012, had for several years tried to emphasize rule of law as a as a governing concept, and the the authorities um, and the sort of think tanks that were trying to measure governance were really just taking that at face value and taking the verbiage at face value in awarding China a higher rank of rule of law. And that was simultaneous to the fact that we could produce, we, we had data on the prosecutions or, or the crackdown on, um, on corrupt individuals within the Communist Party and the bribes and, and sort of uh, payments that they were doing and how many cases were being registered uh, with the disciplinary commission and so we could see that there was this enormous crackdown taking place in the country and that that data was fueling the international or multinational uh, kind of body of work saying that China's rule of law was improving. But from a political point of view, you could also see that this was a, a party rectification campaign and a centralization under Xi Jinping, which would effectively result in um, not rule of law as the West understands it. Let's put it that way. Right. So so being able to make those determinations requires you to understand a space, to understand its history, to understand the flow of political developments, not just to look at these little bite-sized chunks or, or very short time periods to make these types of assertions. That's right. That's right. And, and you know, what we've re relied on, what, what I've found to be extremely valuable is the macroeconomic data that, and, and the way that it's interpreted, and this is of course the, the whole problem that we face in the world, which is that we have a, a huge proliferation of data, but what we have are people are now even machines processing that data at high volume um, without, without interpreting and without recognizing the importance of interpretation. Um, and so what what that means is that sometimes you can draw wildly different conclusions from a set of data. So let me give you an example. Um, you know, what we had in the 1990s and 2000s was this unprecedented global economic boom in this period of globalization. And 
that was repeatedly demonstrated in the economic data and highlighted as a as a cause of uh, global peace. And what's interesting, and I think we can we studied this, you know, back when I worked with you, and and I think many others who were alert to national security issues and geopolitical issues were aware of this. Um, prosperity does not always prevent conflict, and. I think now what we can say definitively in retrospect is that both the U.S. and Russia, you know, major world powers, leading world powers, engaged in wars of choice, not wars of necessity, wars of choice during a period of, uh, you know, of global economic boom and integration. And so what we can then conclude is that economic cooperation and integration should not be interpreted um, in the wrong way. You can show a chart of two countries becoming more dependent upon each other, but it does not exclude the possibility of conflict. And in fact, if the political or strategic conditions of conflict are present, then that economic dependency comes, it becomes a source of aggravation and distrust and, and vulnerability that then can, can turn into a negative strategic dynamic. Well, and that, that perhaps gets us into a great place to discuss, um, the issue of the United States and China and the giant question of whether the world is moving back to a bipolar Cold War structure, whether it's in a multipolar system, um, whether the, the United States or the Chinese are going to, quote, come out on top and dominate uh, the world system. But there is this, this complicating factor that's so fundamentally different today than at the beginning of the Cold War, and that is this strong economic connectivity and dependency between these two countries that has developed and evolved fairly rapidly over the last 30 years. Um, how do you then uh, look at that broader question of US-China relations, the structure of the world system, and how to think about those dependencies as either sources of friction or constraints on action? Yeah, yeah, good, good question. So. First of all, in terms of the global power structure, <clears throat> my thinking on this might be a little different than some that you've talked to, but uh, what I find striking is that you can have an educated debate over whether the world is unipolar, multipolar, or bipolar, meaning that academics really could sit around and, and have a serious debate in which each proposition is maintained. So, for example... Multipolarity, I think, has gained a lot of attention over the past decade, and I think that's valid, and, and that's what my research shows, and that's the side that I come down on. Um, and, and, and again, that's something that you and I worked on many years back. Um, but you can put forward an argument for bipolarity simply looking at the way that the U.S. and China are the effective dominant powers in a world where Russia's war in Ukraine has highlighted its own limitations and, and, and will in the coming years under basically lead to uh, further deterioration in its economic structure and stability. Um, and since Europe and India are not really in a position to challenge the U.S. and China, you could you could make a case for bipolarity. Uh, at the same time, you will hear people say that, no, we're actually at the cusp of a new uh, sort of turn to a, an, another unipolar moment on the basis that Russia has clearly suffered this, uh, this uh, breakdown in their strategy, and China is having a breakdown in its economy, which was long anticipated due to the demographic outlook and the, and the debt 
issues. Um, and so from that point of view, what we see is that the U.S. is surging ahead yet again in, you know, in key measures like GDP per capita uh, or really innovative technology like artificial intelligence. So, um, so I think you can put forward a decent argument for all three of those. Like I said, I'm on the side of multipolarity, but what I find interesting is what that really means is that there's an extreme uncertainty in the world today. If you can have an educated debate about unipolarity, bipolarity, multipolarity, that means that no one really knows what the global political structure is and therefore high degree of uncertainty. Um, and I think that just shows that we're in a period of transition and the transition itself can resolve in different ways based on different scenarios. The reason I come down on the side of those who argue that we're in a multipolar world is first, like we talked about with the data that we rely on, I mean, economically, it's very clear that we've shifted into a more multipolar context, not only because of the US's decline in relative terms as a share of global GDP, but also if we look at all the developed countries, you know, the US, Europe, Japan, we look at all developed countries as a share of global GDP. It used to be a sort of, not long ago, it was an 80%, 20% split with developed markets dominating global GDP. Um, you know, today it's really more 40% for the developed and 60% for, um, I'm sorry, 40% for emerging and 60% for developed. And so you can see that there's much more competition economically. You can also see that strategically, uh, while China's sort of avowed military spending is not nearly as large as the United States, if we assume that they've been spending more than they say, and you know, let's take the average of the US and Russia, let's say that China spends a little bit less than 4% of GDP on its military, which is not what they say. Um, that would suggest, if, if they've been doing that over the past decade, then in fact, they are getting a lot closer uh, just in, in raw spending terms. So to simplify the whole discussion, from my perspective, nuclear weapons ensure the persistence of a number of key powers, um, and that ensures a multipolar environment. If you then take the fact that we have an economically multipolar world, this makes it very hard to argue that the U.S. is truly hegemonic. Uh, it makes it hard to argue that the U.S. can impose its will on on other nuclear powers. Um, and so to me, that means that we end up in a multipolar environment. But what I'm struck what I'm struck by is that there's an enormous uncertainty because the world is in a phase of transition and, and transitions are, you know, are uncomfortable. Right. And, and, and transitions have uh moments of crises that may occur in them um, or that frequently occur in them. And while one can anticipate the potential crises that can emerge uh, frequently, the speed and the way in which they play out may not be quite as uh, predictable because you're starting to get seven or eight or nine iterations down the road for which crisis emerges at which moment, in which context, with which uh, output. You know, and you can see the way, for example, that in the the coronavirus both accelerated and changed certain patterns that were taking place in the world system that probably will it would have evolved and developed in a slightly different direction had that two year hiatus not occurred. 
Yeah, I, I think that I think that's correct. And with China, that's very clear. You know, I think one of the key developments on China and now that we see this, you know, at this moment in August of 2023, we see a, a very high degree of, I guess you could say, capitulation in the financial markets to the understanding that China's economic problems are structural. And that this follows on a misunderstanding over the past nine months. Uh, effectively, what occurred was the coronavirus, uh, of course, the, you know, the, the different variations led to COVID zero policy having a hugely negative effect on China's growth in 2022. When Xi Jinping consolidated power um, yet again in, in October of 2022, he then rapidly pivoted toward reopening the economy, which took, it didn't take me by surprise. I had, I had been writing that this would be the, the play, but it did take, in general, the markets by surprise. And it resulted in this rally in commodities and in Chinese-related assets um, for several months. And the problem that I underscored in my research, and I think that there were others underscoring, is that China's structural problem had nothing to do with the COVID zero policy. So in other words, if you have, you know, an overly indebted economy, um, you know, you don't need to build as many, as much housing and as much property and as much infrastructure as you had been doing, um, then you're going to still struggle with the slowdown in construction activity. And that's going to persist regardless of, of COVID. Um, if there's a global manufacturing slowdown, which partly stemmed from COVID, you know, there was a surge in goods purchases during COVID and then afterwards a big drop in, in, in those purchases and orders. And so we had a, a global manufacturing recession, which is still ongoing now. Um, if that's the case, you're not going to have strong export growth either in China. So effectively, China came into 2023 with a discrepancy between the view that they that reopening would initiate a new um, surge in growth, with the more structural view, and I think clearly now the correct view that that in fact it would just be a brief bounce, and and we would then sink back into a period of disappointments in growth in China, and that again is stemming from the fact that they haven't found a way to get over the fertility issue, and and, and really no Asian economy has, so it's not unique to China. Um, and most of the Western economies haven't either. Uh, and, and of course, they had the largest property bubble um, known to man, effectively, one that even makes the Japanese property bubble pale in comparison. So those issues will persist, uh, even though, you know, it, it, it looked temporarily uh, as, if, um, as if China would simply return to form prior to COVID. Right. And if we think about the added piece in China, you know, the property bubble is in part a reflection that there's no effective utilization of capital in China. They, they, they just don't have a way to grab on to the savings of the population and reinvest it in the economy in the way that other economies have done. And and, you know, we saw them playing around with trying to bring in wealth management firms. We've seen them try to re reboot their stock market. Um, but it just isn't it isn't there. And all of that money loaded into real estate is sunk money. It, it's not utilized in bringing back a surge in the economy. And, and so they've got this big long term challenge to play out. And as we you know, looking at China, it's sometimes, you know, I would argue it's sometimes easier to look at China than the United States because it's far away. We can have a, a 
we can step back from the issue, we can try to separate ourselves from the issue, but you have a unique piece of what you do, and I know we're jumping really fast here, but but you have a unique piece of what, what your responsibility is, and that is to take these geopolitical concepts and look at the United States from that view, and how do you how do you take things that we normally associate with looking at far off places and bring it back to to uh, where you live in a way that is not uh, does not put you in a position where you are trying to want to see things in particular ways that you prefer? Yeah, that that's a great question, and it it is a challenge, and I've I've confronted that, and it's interesting, in fact, because over the whole course of my career, both at Stratfor and at BCA Research. I have repeatedly found uh, myself on the wrong end of accusations of partisanship, and, and what I've what keeps me sort of going, uh, chugging along, is that they come from different directions, you know. And sometimes back to back, I'll have a client kind of say that I'm, you know, favoring uh, President Biden, and then in the next call, I'll have a, a client say that I'm favoring former President Trump, and so that tells me that maybe I'm doing something right. And what I've found in particular over the years, and, and you know, I don't know if you'll agree with this, Roger, but what I've seen is that, first of all, geopolitics does accord a large degree of importance or weight to the nation state. And the president then at times, or let's just say there may be a tendency to, um, to accord a significant capability to the president. And in a, part, in a, in a partisan context, that will be seen as favoring the president. And so that's, for example, why I've been on the opposite end of, you know, criticisms favoring Obama and then favoring Trump and now favoring Biden. And the, the truth is that I just don't underrate the American presidency as an office. Um, and that's my view. But anyway, how do I do it? Well, one thing I've seen is that language matters. You know, like, for example, I've started referring to the Republican and Democratic parties as factions rather than parties just to indicate a certain a certain distance that I think you know many geopolitical thinkers would have no trouble referring to to the the disputants in the, in Thailand as opposing factions but for some reason in America we're supposed to give them the dignity of being parties um you know but maybe change our language a little bit to distance ourselves i refer often to the incumbent president or the ruling party or the opposition party rather than you know using just the terms uh, you know, Democrat and Republican, or 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 even worse, you know, saying right wing or left wing, which can sound pejorative depending on which direction. So, you know, I think I think the language is part of it. I think the bigger thing, of course, is going back to our original point, being data dependent. Um, what we see in the U.S. is very clearly a rural versus urban political split, and it's also one that re recurs in U.S. history, which is federal versus state, and the 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 electoral college has really become central to this because there because effectively we've had five contested elections in history and uh, two of them were just in the past 20 years and the reason was because the republican party has been more adept at winning the electoral college than winning the popular vote and so this just naturally taps into a fissure in the framework of, of American government and, um, and, and generates controversy. But, uh, but I hope that if we stay data dependent, what we can do is recognize that the U.S. has, first of all, a, a big problem 
with inequality. And inequality can be measured in different ways so that you can focus on different types of inequality. Income and wealth inequality is a big factor, but also regional inequality. Um, it, we, can, we can identify that we truly are extremely polarized. So in other words, those who say that, well, the U.S. is always polarized, you know, it's true the U.S. was highly polarized in the 1800 election, uh, but, uh, but when we measure polarization, um, we have good measures, at least in the post-Civil War context, and we're at a historic high. So, so that's very clear that in a context of high inequality, we also have high polarization, um, and, and we've seen deindustrialization, and this really came into the discussion with President Trump. So I think those factors are all objective. And then what we've seen is that the Biden administration has co-opted a lot of President Trump's policies, which validates that those were legitimate grievances, you know, um, not on immigration. That's one of the big divergences and, and on renewable energy. Those are big divergences. But with regard to protectionism, uh, industrial policy, infrastructure, we see a new consensus forming, that, which is kind of an Obama-Trump-Biden consensus that the U.S. needs to focus on nation building at home. Uh, so pulling all this together, what I see is I think there is a new consensus forming. I think the data show that the Trump uh, or modern Republican Party uh, have a popularity problem and and had not pursued a broader tent or you know a broader uh, ability to reach out to different constituencies and that's um and that's their structural issue which i think can be solved if, as soon as they pursue some a, a younger candidate or a candidate who's more uh diverse or willing to embrace diversity uh, and then I think on the Democratic side, I think what they have is a, more of a cyclical problem. They have those structural factors in favor of having a, a, a large popular movement, but cyclically they have engaged in too much spending, which has jacked up inflation, forcing the Fed to hike rates. And they may now, you know, there's a, there's a not low probability that we have a recession before the election, which would really scramble their plans. Um, and this is a sort of a wandering answer to your question, but I guess I'd conclude by saying I think we're at a very pivotal moment because if the Trump faction or let's say the populist faction of the Republican Party, if they win in 2024, I think the only way they can do that is if there's a recession or some other major shock that we can't expect. But the recession probability is high enough that that's a reasonable risk. Um, if that happens, then I think the polarization can extend you know, throughout the next four years very easily, uh, five, six years. But um, but if, you know, if, if we don't get that recession, then the Democratic Party is heavily favored to stay in power simply on the incumbent advantage, if nothing else. And in that context, what we'll see is that the, the, Trump, uh, the Trump strategy has been disproved as an electoral strategy. And in that context, the Republican Party will have to adopt a different strategy for 2028. And I think that ultimately that will result in depolarization uh, over the long run. So that, that may be an outside of the box view for you. Yeah, I mean, to me, I'm, you know, I'm looking at this from a, from sort of a, a bigger picture also, you know, as you, you, you've recognized from your work, some element of continuity in the Obama Trump Biden administration in regards to national prioritization and things. It's part of a bigger pattern I, I've referred to many times as um, 
effectively continentalism versus internationalism in the U.S. And we're back in a continentalist poll. And there are very clear continentalist dynamics of all three administrations, despite the extreme political differences that we see. So I think that that's interesting. Another thing that maybe later down the road we can look at is um, the shifting center of gravity of U.S. economic activity. So it moves at different moments in time, and that has different socioeconomic reflections that play into that po broader political spectrum and define what is the... Um, What's the norm in America versus the outlying concepts? So there's some other pieces that we can look at. Um, we're, we're, we're pushing time here. Um, this is really fascinating. And I think what this tells me is you need to come back in a couple months and we're going to talk huh, again. Yeah, sure. Um, Glad to do that. But, but let's, let's go into sort of a rapid fire last shot. Give me three key themes, issues, or broader context to think about going forward outside of the United States. So as we're thinking about the rest of the world, what are two or three of the big broad themes or focal areas that you think should be paid attention to um, from these geopolitical perspectives as we're leaning forward? Okay, sure. Yeah, I think, well, I think the first thing is Russia, because even though the markets have become desensitized to Ukraine in the war there, I do think we're still in a pivotal moment there. Uh, be, both because the Ukrainians have full support at, at present from the United States and and, and decent support from Europe, and uh, they're lodging a counteroffensive. So, in other words, their momentum is not very likely to ever get much higher than it than it is this fall in the counteroffensive. And also, the March 2024 election in Russia is a period where Putin will be extremely sensitive. Obviously, he can manipulate the election, but it's easier to manipulate an election that you win by the popular vote than rather having to steal one outright and, and risk large-scale social unrest, which is what happened in Belarus in 2020 and certainly can happen in Russia. So so I think that we're in an extremely sensitive period there. And, um, and the gist of it is that if the Ukrainians are um, halted, then we then this stalemate environment is sort of confirmed and then the world will start to look beyond this war. On the other hand, if the Ukrainians achieve a major strategic breakthrough, uh, then I think that could really destabilize the world because I think Russia would, would be forced to escalate further given that, that context in the domestic politics in Russia. Um, so that's one dynamic, and I think you could broaden that out to sort of the future of Russia, and I would just characterize it as, will Russia... Uh, continue to easternize, which has been the effect of Putin's regime and, and Putin's uh, outreach to China and, and break up with, with Europe? Or will there be regime change in Russia and will Russia revert back to engaging with the West? And I think that's very far away today, but I think for those of us who think geopolitically, we have to still consider that as a potential over the long run. Um, another one would be China. I think we've identified that they have an economic breakdown that's going to lead to social instability, but also what we've seen is a, a more assertive foreign policy, and that's over the whole period of the declining income growth, so we think it'll continue. And in that context, you know, what does China do? I don't think that they're ready to outright invade Taiwan, but I do think that the pressure on Taiwan can go up, and the pressure in their region, and... Um, and so I think an extroverted Chinese policy in the, in the context of debt deflation at home would be extremely worrisome. Whereas the contrast would be, well, what if the Chinese leadership really does make an, a, a, a giant pivot 
and start to focus more on rebuilding their economy and and um, and, and not uh, pursuing a more aggressive foreign policy. Um, that would be a change. That's not really what I expect, but I do think it's an important dynamic to to watch. And then finally, the Iran uh, in Middle East scenario or, or context. You know, I think this is important simply because the Iranians have achieved nuclear breakout capacity and nothing has happened. I think the news media is kind of ignoring the issue. Financial markets are ignoring the issue. But the truth is that there does need to be some decision either way, whether it's just containment, which is normally what happens when a, when a country gets nuclear weapons, or whether, in fact, the red line that U.S. and Israel have repeatedly declared will be enforced, that Iran does not get nuclear weapons. And that decision-making process is going to be happening over the next few years. It's, it's really fairly urgent in geopolitical terms, and I think that's uh, an extremely underrated and dangerous dynamic. All right. Well, that is excellent insights. Um, I really want to thank you today. Uh, this was fascinating. The time went way faster um, than, than, than I anticipated, but uh, uh, great thoughts from you, Matt. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Roger. Real pleasure to be with you and look forward to coming back. And thank you for listening. We've been talking with Matt Gherkin, BCA Research's Chief Strategist, Geopolitical Strategy, and U.S. Political Strategy. To keep up with the latest changes in the global geopolitical landscape and to think about the ways in which these impact internationally engaged businesses and organizations, visit RAINnetwork.com and sign up for alerts and information from the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Roger Baker. Thanks for listening.